This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queen's College in the City University of New York. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Rasmus Koss-Hartman from the Copenhagen Business School. Rasmus Koss-Hartman on entrepreneurship, next. In sociology, we talk a lot about social change and innovation in the abstract, like new stuff just uh, comes up, it just appears, Uh, change occurs in the abstract as if there's some faceless force that drives new things to emerge. And, And we sometimes think of corporations or governments or universities as black boxes where you pour money into them and then it rattles and some new innovation pops out that changes the world. But often when you look at specific cases of, you know, new innovations or technological advancements or social change, you see that there are people who devised plans and orchestrated resources and did things to make new ideas become real. And I find thinking about the details of how people create new organizations or lead social change to be something that's really fascinating and maybe something that we should spend more time delving into the particulars of uh, when we run our studies. And we're very lucky today to have uh, an expert on entrepreneurship with us, uh, Rasmus Koss Hartman is an associate professor at the Copenhagen Business School. He studied maker spaces, innovation in healthcare, and there was a really interesting piece on innovation in the face of COVID that I, I hope we get to talk about today. But first, let's just introduce you. Welcome, Rasmus. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, what do you say? Like long time listener, first time caller? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you. I'm 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 always flattered when any, anybody listens. So, uh, thank you. Uh, so let's start off because we're, we are going to have a lot of listeners who don't have a background in organizations or markets or things like that. What is entrepreneurship? What do people study in this subfield? Well, that's a that's a really good question. Actually, better than you probably imagine um, because that's a pretty big discussion, right? Um, there's a way to think about entrepreneurship where it's like just the formation of new firms, which you can do using registry data and uh, business registrations, and, and you can do all kinds of things with that. And that's that we call that entrepreneurship uh, studies. And then we also call it entrepreneurship studies when we look at what you sometimes call gazelle firms, unicorns, and these hyper-successful Silicon Valley-type things. And both things get called entrepreneurship, although they, of course, are profoundly different. Yeah. So that's a... So what do people study when they study entrepreneurship? Lots of different things, and but call it the same thing, which is part of the confusion and part of the mythology of entrepreneurship as an issue, right? Yeah. So what's your view on, on it? Well, I've been, I mean, I've been interested especially in, um, as you mentioned, I come out of innovation studies, and then mm-hmm. and I was teaching entrepreneurship in my prior job and got, got to thinking about the effect of, like, entrepreneurship programs and entrepreneurship teaching on students. So that's what I've been looking at, especially, or and what I'm currently looking at. So like, especially university student entrepreneurship is what I'm, what I'm interested in, what I'm looking at, uh, but not in the, right, there's a genre of that kind of study, which looks at MIT and Stanford, hmm. which, of course, we learn something from, especially if they fail, right? We don't learn so yeah. much if they succeed, which would be unsurprising to especially sociologists. Um, yeah. But um 
But what I'm interested in is like the effect of entrepreneurship programs, entrepreneurship teaching, and what you might more broadly call the entrepreneurship industry on especially student entrepreneurs, which has sort of a critical theory flavor, uh, right? Mm -hmm. um, like what does an industry do to its consumers and the production and the consumer culture that exists around a particular thing? And there is this entrepreneurship industry that is producing a particular image of entrepreneurship and doing something to the consumers of that, of those products. I, I always thought of it as I love, I love the field. And I always, I mean, as a, as a fan of it, uh, not so much as a contributor, but I always thought of studying entrepreneurship as sort of like the craft and the practice of creating organizations, either like new organizations or like, you know, getting it, carving out a space in an organization to start a new operation, creating a new department or a new program, for example. What do people sort of, uh, what problems do people engage or what do other people like looking at in that field? Well, if you, if you think about just the, um, that, that, has an, that has sort of a name as well, intrapreneurship mm -hmm. it's sometimes called, which is like the entrepreneur within an organizational context. Yeah. And it sort of comes out of the history of entrepreneurship that you can do both things and call it entrepreneurship. Yeah. So the sort of entrepreneurship was put on the map in 1911 by um, by Joseph Schumpeter, right, who talks mm -hmm. about the entrepreneur, and he has this really sort of funky uh, depiction of it, which has this, like, almost romantic genius flavor. Yeah. And, he's, and he's thinking essentially about, like, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, right? Um, yeah. And really much, very much the hero, uh, Elon Musk type, right? This genius mm -hmm. who pushes new things into the world through sheer force of will. It has almost like a Nietzsche and Nietzschean flavor, right? Um, that then sort of moves from the figure of on, the entrepreneur, Schumpeter moves into this idea of the entrepreneurial function, which has then gets its own sort of um, its own sort of literature, which is about mm -hmm. not so much the the formation of firms, but more like this this function of bringing novelty into the economy, identifying inefficiencies and correcting them, and that of course mm -hmm. could happen both within established companies or with or outside of them. Um, mm -hmm. And then from there, you sort of, then you begin to have these large data sets as well. And then people start to look at like firm formation as in business registration, which is, of course, a difficult thing to compare to the thing we were talking about before, because business registration is, of course, also like Kathy's Corner Deli and Facebook, right? Those are, right. Those are lumped together and, and, of course, have very, have very little to do with each other, right? Both are, of course, new, new companies, but operate in totally different ways and do totally different things, have totally different intentions, motivated yeah. by different things, right? It's, it's like they're as different as people, yeah. Yes, and, and, the, and of course, you can't compare those. Um, you can't really compare what those companies are doing. You can't really compare when one succeeds with another, mm -hmm. right? So there are those different sort of trajectories, right? They're sort of looking at the unicorns and gazelles and the aspiring ones of the world, mm -hmm. right? And then there's the just the, the bringing of novelty and the formation of new organizations. And then there's sort of the business registration thing, and they're all sort of on that spectrum of entrepreneurship. And a lot of the theorizing in entrepreneurship is actually quite muddled because of that apples and oranges problem. Hmm. So when you talk, for instance, about like the likelihood of entrepreneurial success depends incredibly on what you're actually looking at, right? Who becomes a successful entrepreneur? Totally different as well. So, so it's it's almost like the field is as is broad as sociology itself, right? You have like a very wide topic where there's all sorts of area experts who are going at it from 
their own different angles. So where where's the sweet spot for sociologists in this field? Like if you're a young person who's interested in this topic, but you're in a sociology program or that's your sort of native discipline, where's, you know, where's a, a great place for uh, to target your attentions? I think there are a couple of things, right? Um, there's an interesting question around like, the effect of social networks on entrepreneurship. I think that's like mm-hmm. that's something which sociology is definitely um, really strong on, also within the business school context, right? What does it mean to be embedded in particular social networks? What is like the mobility issues here? Should you, like a practical question that we would deal with in the business school is should you stay in place, in the place where you have dense networks, or should you move to centers of entrepreneurial activity and tap into those networks? How does that actually work? embeddedness mm-hmm. versus agglomeration, I think you could call it. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's like um, issues of something which on, um, sociology has been doing well, I think, too. Immigrant entrepreneurship and ethnic entrepreneurship. Um, hmm. That's sort of an interesting question or an interesting thing about, we talk about Western countries often in, in these terms, but entrepreneurship is much more prevalent in many uh, non-Western countries, right? But that's so, sort of a different kind of entrepreneurship often, right? For sociology as well, right, there's an interesting question of inequality uh, into and resulting from entrepreneurship. There's some something on intergenerational effects um, hmm. as well. Um, we know it seems like parents with entrepreneurial work tend to produce offspring with entrepreneurial work um, who do entrepreneurial work. The effect of schooling seems to be pretty impactful as well. Raj Chetty, um, an economist actually out of... Um, in, at Stanford, I believe he is now, um, has basically been showing some of the effects of like exposure to entrepreneurs early in life and the effect of uh, early education on um, innovating and entrepreneuring, right? Hmm. Then there's something that, that's especially interesting to me is like the idea and ideology of entrepreneurship. Yeah. How does that actually matter for the practice of entrepreneurship? I think that's pretty fascinating because... Well, what, wait, what is that? The ideology of entrepreneurship. Like, what is, what is that? So if you, um, if you look at somebody like um, Deirdre McCluskey, right, uh, economic historian, she's basically made the argument that one of the reasons the West grew rich, right, that's like mm. the big question in economic history. She basically makes the argument that, that has to do with the way that, we, that there was a change in how we thought about entrepreneurship, about becoming and then starting new ventures, taking risk, that changed in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. And basically, that was a big part of the explanation for why we, for the Industrial Revolution and for the, the way the world is today, right? Mm. So that sort of ideological change matters for how entrepreneurship is practiced today, right? Then um, mm. some of my co-authors and other people as well have been looking at like how that pendulum, so to speak, has not just swung from... Mm-hmm. A time when if you were an enterprising uh, young person, you would become a knight or a monk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where today you become an entrepreneur, start a company. How that pendulum has not just swung, but maybe like swung through the cabinet wall, right? To the yeah. extent that we yeah. just lionize and celebrate entrepreneurship to an incredible degree today. Oh, yeah. Elect him to parliament, put him in power. Precisely. And, it's, um, and be, have begin to teach entrepreneurship in grade school even, right? Mm -hmm. Because this is increasingly being pushed as something that contributes dramatically to um, economic Mm -hmm. growth, which is so interesting because so much of it doesn't, right? Why? What do you mean by that? So um, this is really interesting paper called Muppets and Gazelles, which is 
um, been really quite illuminating uh, for me at least, um, which is basically making the argument that there's this mythology around entrepreneurship that it does all kinds of things, right? It's really important to innovation. It's really important to economic uh, productivity, to growth, to employment. And when you look at it, it's just, as we talked about, lots of methodological issues in dealing with entrepreneurship, right? But to the, the best we know about it, it actually seems that most entrepreneurs don't innovate. Most uh -huh. operate pretty <laughs> far from the productivity frontier. Most actually don't um, create new jobs, right? They, they sort of, <laughs> They right. do, but they also go out of business so fast that it's not like yeah. it, they contribute churn uh, more yeah. than they contribute like new jobs and growth and job growth, right? So huh. they're so they're what what you could like it has sort of a derogatory flavor, but you could abbreviate it and say they're muppets, right? They're economically marginal, huh. they're undersized, and because of that, they're poorly performing relative to large firms. So most entrepreneurs become these muppets, right? Um, mm. Yeah, of limited economic import. And then you have rare entrepreneurs who do a lot of these things and who just like change the economy and change the world. They become gazelle. They become gazelles, right? Or right. these unicorn companies that everyone's really infatuated with. Right. So because the outcomes are so skewed, you get this mythology around what entrepreneurship can do and sort of a downplaying of the average effect, so to speak, or the likelihood right. of achieving those outcomes. And something right. that I've been interested in, especially, is like, how is it that that ideology gets pushed, right? How how does that become a widely widely accepted mythology, basically? You know, it's funny. My colleague and I, Ryan Sperry, had a conference paper. Right? We had we were working on it, but we found that a lot of people who said they were self employed, they didn't even have assets or sales on the books, and uh, we were inferring that it was a lot of tax you know, construing themselves as entrepreneurs for either tax or social signaling purposes. Uh. I mean, I, I'm sort of biased towards the social signaling part, um, yeah. right? I have a paper with um, two colleagues where we talk about the um, what we call like the rise of the Veblenian entrepreneur. My, yeah. my, remember Veblen of the theory of the leisure class and conspicuous yeah. consumption? And we yeah. have sort of... Um, we're sort of, we try to push the idea that there's this massive industry contributing mm -hmm. to entrepreneurship, right? Like yeah. nominally, it's supposed to enable people and support them in identifying valuable opportunities. And sometimes it might do that, right? Sometimes. Right. The evidence is pretty sparse, but you actually, it actually seems to be the opposite. That when you consume goods from the entrepreneurship industry, the more you, the more you consume, the worse you actually end up performing, right? You're more mm. likely to start a venture, but that venture is less likely to succeed. Um, mm -hmm. And that holds both when you compare non-consumers and consumers and it, and when you consume like people who consume a little and people who consume a lot, right? The more you consume, the more you do, but the lower quality it tends to be. And our huh. and and that paper, which is really good, um, it's called um, The Entrepreneurship Industry, right? Yeah. Basically argues that this industry does a couple of different things, right? It It increases confidence. Right, it makes people confident mm. about becoming entrepreneurs. Yeah, <laughs> and then it it sort of gives them it gives them tools that are that feel like they're they're working or that they're substantive, but really are not. Right, that yeah. substituting yeah hard work and effort and and sort of deep analysis with superficial analysis and um, pretty low effort um, things. Right, and then what we've been pushing is like two other explanations. One is that. It's not just increasing confidence. It's also mm. changing the motivations for becoming an entrepreneur. 
right? It's making yeah. it possible to be an entrepreneur primarily, if you say, for social signaling purposes. Because mm-hmm. if you're a young person and you're underemployed, right? If you're mm-hmm. right, a college-educated barista is sort of a good example, right? If, you, if you're in that situation, it is often like socially preferable to be a founder and CEO of a company, even though it might yeah. not succeed. Then it is right. That's a lot more fun to tell mom and dad than it is to say that you're doing something else, right? Yeah. So that's one part of it, and I think the and another part part which we're sort of exploring is that it also seems to you could also imagine that it actually distorts people's learning, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the mythology of entrepreneurship, you could actually get this. You actually have a situation where people actively learn to misinterpret signals. We call mm-hmm. it like we we've called it um, Beckerian distortion. You you remember mm-hmm. um, Becker of becoming a marijuana user, right? Yeah, Become yeah. a marijuana it, yeah. user, of course, right? One needs to yeah. learn to reinterpret negative signals as positive ones, right? And there's like you have to have a community that helps you do that. Right. Um, <laughs> and the entrepreneurship industry might be actually pushing that as well, like telling people that no failure is just totally a part of it, right? You need to persist in the face of failure, launch product before you're ready try to get them out there, and then you'll just learn, right? When in fact, we know that people struggle to learn from failure. And that, might, and then it might actually be pushing them into doing things that make them more likely to fail continuously. Could I share a two empirical examples? I'd love them, uh, yeah. That have emerged in our... So my colleague, Dana Weinberg, has been studying uh, self-publishing authors, and I've been studying uh, podcasters. And what's very interesting is there is no shortage of firms who will sell you services to help you become a better podcaster or help you become a better uh, author. And most of them involve really basic computer functions with a nice UI on them. But what's interesting is they orient the writer or the podcaster towards having to make money because they introduce costs to the enterprise. It makes it more expensive to run the enterprise. And so in both cases, like it distorts the creator's sort of behavior in a way. It gets them off podcasting for sure. And it it makes it more of a profit-oriented endeavor when really you need no money to run a podcast. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. and I and I think for entrepreneurship, at least, this is a this is a pretty sizable industry, right? Yeah. Um, in that paper on the entrepreneurship industry, they collected data in uh, twenty fourteen, and they found there was something on the order of a thirteen billion dollar industry, mm-hmm. like selling goods and services to entrepreneurs, yeah, um, uh. and growing like at twelve percent per annum, which is like one wow. of the fastest growing industries in in the economy, right? And that was especially driven by advisory services, um, mm-hmm. administrative support, and lots of like expo activities, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which has this interesting effect that you mentioned, like that telling people this is what you need to do to succeed, when those are like the, the examples you mentioned, they don't make you a great podcaster, right? They, yeah. they make you feel like you're learning something and you're doing something but the substantive craft of it doesn't really come out, right? It gets downplayed. can even endanger the long-term viability of the enterprise because if you don't make money and you feel you can't afford to do something that you could have done for free, the enterprise could die quickly, you know? And I mean, I, I guess podcasting is not unlike um, entrepreneurship generally. 
right? It's a skewed distribution like heck, right? It's it's not it's not a bell curve. It's a power law, right? Some yeah. people get all the action. And most of the things that people would do would crowd into the left-hand side of that distribution. Yeah. Right? They would not succeed. And then you actually have something which just costs money and actually is asking people to either spend their money or get in debt to do these things. Yeah. Which seems really problematic, right? Well, it's it, what what's most interesting about podcasting is the the costs are so minimal that money on some level can become irrelevant if your enterprise doesn't get enmeshed in too many commercial services. Like yeah. you don't need money, and if you don't need money, you don't need audience, and and it's not a problem until you need money. And and by from what I'm seeing. The sold services to podcasters is easily one of the fasting, fastest growing parts of the the market. Like the real consumers are the producers more yeah. than, you know, the advertisers that aren't are really advertising <laughs> on this medium. I mean, some a metaphor that we use sometimes is like in a gold rush, right? It's, the best thing to do is, of course, to sell shovels, right? But the, yeah. and, the, and, the fa- and the fact that there are shovel sellers probably transforms the gold diggers, right? It gets yeah. more people into it because there's an infrastructure and it pushes more people into it and creates this, the impression that this is easy to do and that, yeah. oh, you just need to go and dig a hole and you'll be, you'll be rich, right? Uh, yeah. when, when, and, and of course, <laughs> there's, there's just an incredible <laughs> level of survivorship bias here, right? Yeah. Especially yeah. not, right? Because people drop out and nobody, like nobody hears from failed startups. Yeah. Right? <laughs> They're just gone, which yeah. of course conflates like, what is it that happens to everybody with what is it that was essential for the ones who succeed? Like, for instance, yeah. something which I, which, I, which I think is terrible is like the, oh, everyone should just pitch to a thousand investors, right? And just persist, right? Because that's what happens. That was what happened to Airbnb. That was what happened to all the yeah. <laughs> ones that succeeded, which when, of course, like everybody gets rejected, right? Yeah. Getting rejected is not a mark uh, that you're on the right track. Right. Yeah. There's a way where you should probably think about that. It's like knowledgeable people are telling you that this is not yeah. going to work. Right. I think of note. Yeah. Um, it's hard because when you deal with young people, they're like, listen, I'm not going to let you push me off my dream of selling out. You know, and so it's, it's difficult also. People get, you know. people get, get hooked on the idea. Right. And, and I mean, I'm at a business yeah. school in it and I teach amongst other things in a program focused on digital management, right? And lots of students come in wanting to be entrepreneurs, right? They say, yeah. I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't have an idea yet. I just know that I want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. And that, which of course is like a big, um, big red flag, I, I would say, <laughs> right? And because, I mean, because there's actually quite recently came out very compelling evidence, I think that young people don't make very good entrepreneurs, yeah. right? The, yeah, the, I saw the, that on Twitter. The good time to start a company is when you're 45, which makes yeah. perfect sense, right? Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. have maybe 20 years of industry experience, so you actually know how an industry works. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know people in the industry, so you actually know, like, how good am I? How, who would be good mm-hmm. to work with? Who could be a viable first customer? Mm-hmm. What does it actually mean to work, like, to go to work in the morning, right? Um, yeah. What does it mean to uh, work in a in an organized setting, people might have management experience. If they've worked in startups, you know, they might know people who have wealth, <laughs> who have yeah. been lucky enough to have been on a successful startup, and they can tap into wealth there. So if you're 25, like with all due respect, there are great examples of 
uh, people who succeed, right? But you don't have any money. You have no experience. Yeah. You don't know anything really about how a company even works. You have no management experience. So there's, um, it makes perfect sense that you should be older to be an entrepreneur, right? And I often yeah. tell people that, you know, find an industry that you think is interesting and go work there and then find a problem that you think is worth solving or go work at a startup and find out how those work, right? Don't think that you mm -hmm. should start your own startup. And I actually think like for university programs, this is a really interesting question. Yeah. Do we actually contribute to successful entrepreneurship when we teach our students about it? Or should we really like find ways to teach people who are older um, right. and help, help them because they're more likely to succeed? Um, so this is a topic that I have thought a lot about because, you know, to my mind, there's a lot of very basic things that you have to understand to create an enterprise that young people can be told and they can watch it and it's worth teaching them. Like, for example, like an organization should have a point. Yeah. You should be trying to do something, you know, right. <laughs> or, or like, you know, you should think about how you're going to manage the people who work in your enterprise so that it will contribute to the goal. So I think there are things that if you sensitize young people to the practical tasks involved in running uh, an enterprise, they'll become aware of it and they'll have their eye open and they can learn better while they're going up through the ranks. And also, you know, philosophically, one problem that I have with sociology, because I'm a migrant, my home discipline is, is management studies, and I came to the discipline from management studies. And my one big qualm with sociology is I find many academics expend a lot of energy telling students what to fight for or what to strive for, and don't spend enough time telling students how to make their own agenda happen or how to make their own visions come true. And so, you know, I, I feel like I would love to see more entrepreneurship in any department. Uh, I think it would benefit students over the course of their life, you know, their career. I think that's, um, I'm not sure I agree with that, actually. Um, oh, okay. um, because for sure, you can teach people about it. And, and for sure, it would sensitize them to opportunity and, and to creative mindsets. But something I think is really important to tell students is that being an entrepreneur is like absolutely not a free lunch, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I can, I can sort of rattle off the, some of the stylized facts here, right? Lower lifetime earnings, uh, mm. higher incidence of, um, of mental illness, increased rates of divorce, harder time getting a job yeah. afterwards. Um, so like all kinds of actually negative outcomes. People who aren't entrepreneurs, they, they seem to be actually happier uh, than people mm -hmm. who work in corporate jobs. I think that says probably more about corporate jobs and the alienation that can come with them than it says about yeah. uh, entrepreneurship. But I think the fact that it is not a free lunch is actually a really big deal. Um, and especially because this, and the, the thing that I think is important here is that often, like, as you mentioned, it costs money, right? Yeah. Being an entrepreneur can be pretty expensive, both in foregone earnings and also in, like, it can be expensive to try, try stuff out. Oh, yeah. And there's this, and where does that money come from? For most young people, it comes from their parents and their immediate uh, social connections. And, and when we know that entrepreneurship is likely to fail, that puts a lot of strain on people, right? Right. Um, and especially when you also have the narrative that people should persist, right? You, sh you should really dig deeper. 
right? Right. Um, you can always dig a little deeper, and that can be a pretty damaging. I think that can be You're a right. damaging path for sure, and I think that needs to be balanced into it. I think okay, I agree with you. You have a good point. So maybe it's like. I don't know if teaching entrepreneurship means pushing self-employment or business startups, right? But entrepreneurship in the sense of just, you know, building, enter, including intrapreneurship, like building enterprises wherever you are in different spaces, whether it's in a company or in a nonprofit or as part of a committee. And, you know, so you're right. I think it you probably have to narrowly focus, but the the practice I think of enterprise development is something that I, 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 I think students, it's, it helps them a lot to know. Oh, that we can agree on uh, for sure. Yeah. But again, though, again, this sort of feeds into the discussion about entrepreneurship being sort of a vague, vague yeah. thing. Right. And, but for sure, the sensitivity to how can we bring new things in something that I've been, there's a lot of work on uh, entrepreneurial strategy, right? the kind of choices that entrepreneurs can make to succeed or not succeed. And some of the most interesting um, stuff there, I think, is um, by Joshua Gantz and uh, Scott Stern out of MIT. have been doing most of it with various co-authors. And they basically provide this, what I think is a schemata for like an entrepreneurial imagination. We Everybody knows sociological imagination, right? This ability to think sociologically. And what what they've done, I think, really meaningfully is to say, any idea can be implemented in quite a in quite a number of different ways. Yeah, and you should always try to when when there is an idea, you should always like try to develop an image of how this could be done in at least four ways, mm. and then you should test two and choose one. Huh. And I think that sort of thinking about it is really informative, right? To say, yeah, the ability to take an idea and to say, really, let's try to let's try to develop this and think about what would this look like if we pursued it in this path along this path served this customer group, relied on these technologies, competed against these firms, tried to build these huh. organizations. How would that actually all complement? I think that's an interesting sort of way of thinking about it, this building of an entrepreneurial imagination. Because one of the things in entrepreneurship, of course, is everybody thinks that they should be disrupting something, right? Yeah. Um, which is a terrible idea. Um, yeah. Or they, or they rush, they, you know, they rush to form an LLC and go shopping around for venture capitalists, right, right out yeah. of the box, you know, like, you're right. What a, it is quite profound, too, because like, it's, it is separating the craft of entrepreneurship from small business management. For sure. Yeah. Huh. And again, just you mentioned venture capital, we also know, like, what venture capital does to a company, right? Um, yeah. It's going to induce a push for like, sometimes you hear this, right? What's a much more ambitious version of this, right? Yeah. So there's like a real push to like, we need this company to have a hundred and 100x multiple, right? We need it to succeed wildly. Yeah. And that can push companies to uh, scale up too fast. And of course, scaling up mm -hmm. is like super organizationally difficult, right? There can be differences across the, as you move from one adopter group to another, um, mm -hmm. Tom Eisenman out of Harvard has a really book, that, a really good book that just came out uh, called "Why Startups Fail," which talks about mm -hmm. some of these things. He talks about like the speed trap that some entrepreneurs fall into, right? Mm -hmm. Because venture capital is pushing them to scale faster, grow faster, right? Get, get to the IPO or the the buyout as quick as possible, type of thing. Of course, and of and of course, like IPOs are 
really rare events, right? Um, yeah, for sure. So like aiming for that is for most people, most of the time, a pretty terrible idea, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like that type of environment would deprive an economy of like a steady growth, medium-sized enterprise. And it would basically just, you know, take a bunch of small enterprise and hype them up as fast as possible. You probably get a lot of flame out and who knows. And you could imagine that that was a big part of uh, why bubbles form in the economy, right? Once yeah, in exactly. once a sector is once a sector is growing, everybody wants to get into that sector. So you throw good money into bad sectors or overhyped yeah. sectors, and then you get, yeah. and then eventually you get shakeout, and lots of companies basically go out of business within that sector, and a few survivors happen, right? And of course, bubbles are really wasteful, wasteful of money wasteful of human resources. So in that sense, the, that, that sort of tendency towards hype building has all sorts of negative effects, right? And, and yeah. even like sending young people into entrepreneurship, I think is, it's a viable question. Is that actually a good idea? Telling these good and bad students, right, across the distribution that entrepreneurship is viable. It's an open question what that actually does to the economy. Right? Is it good that yeah. we allocate people to these companies that are even like really good students and really bright people can start a company that just ultimately fails right and so lots of lots of effort is wasted on that account it, it probably depends on what type of school you teach at because For i sure. teach i teach working class new yorkers and like they, they, there's no they're under no illusions that someone's gonna you know drop 50 grand on them and let them futz around for two years to start a bagel shopper you know like a clothing line they're so it might be, but maybe when you have kids who could get some parental money, it seems a little more viable. It's an interesting issue, right? The, in my prior job I worked in, I, I was teaching entrepreneurship to natural science students. I was working yeah. in, the, in, the, in the business arm of the university and I was told, let's teach these natural science students something about entrepreneurship. Yeah. And that was precisely the thing, right? They thought, to some extent, rightly, that this was complete bullshit, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was no way that this was for them. Most of them, most of them wanted to be like bench scientists or high school teachers, right? Yeah. Um, and they're like, "Why do we even need this?" But of course, the university was incentivized to push people into this because there was um, sort of it was being measured from yeah. at a governmental level, right? That how many people are starting companies? That is something that we think is important. And so students were right. pushed into this. And, and I tried, to, and of course, the course had been run a couple of times and, and had this flavor of let's teach them essentially to be on Shark Tank, right? To pitch, yeah. uh, which is an interesting thing where you substitute substance for form, right? Yeah. Well, it's also applied skills, right? It's, it's an applied skill. But of course, like the, 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 the thing about pitching is not being good at pitching, right? It's about... Yeah. <laughs> Having, it's about a, good having a good idea, right? And having the <laughs> skills to think it through and to execute on it, um, which is like, it's great to be a public speaker. It's even better if you have something to say, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that was sort of an, an interesting tension. That, and as you said, like the students were under no illusion that this was for them, yeah. right? but they had to do it. And that was what sort of brought me into this thinking about, well, are we actually pushing people to do this and hyping it up? Yeah, in an unhelpful way, and and of course, like the the consensus in sociology is that there's wild hype about entrepreneurship, yeah. like incredibly wild hype, and it's a huge distraction from what is actually what most entrepreneurs do, namely small business management. What's it like to be self-employed? What's it like to have a small business? Because everyone's infatuated with these 
like the ideology of entrepreneurship. Yeah, I want to say like one in a million Silicon Valley thing. It's not one in yeah. a million, but it's pretty close, right? It's like like one in a hundred thousand type uh, outcome. That that being said, you know, I was uh, I was looking at government funding data and found out how much of tax revenues are contributed by like the point one percent. And I think there's like there's probably like they need Elon Musk's and stuff like that. Uh, just out of the current system. Oh, it's the- I, and I and and that's the tension, of course. Right, those those outliers contribute a lot to the economy, right? We can, of course, like Elon Musk is a special case, and he contributes all kinds of weird things to the economy. Yeah, uh, not just <laughs> not just companies, right? Um, <laughs> but it is those outliers that and that kind of company that creates new jobs, right? advances productivity, um, does a lot of the innovation. Not like a lot of innovation comes from established firms, but entrepreneurs do a kind of innovation that tends to not get done, right? Yeah. So entrepreneurs are really important to the functioning of the economy and to economic progress. Yeah. It's just that it's so few that actually actually have that sort of effect. And how should we think about piling, piling people into that distribution? If it's like a lottery, yeah, because right. yeah, it really, it should, yeah. It, it should change how we think about it. And it's like, yeah, it's like lottery. It's like professional athletics. It's like the music yeah. business, right? Yeah. We would, I think if we were quite honest about the skewness of that distribution, we'd be advising people in a different way. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I want to shift gears because you wrote a paper at the beginning of COVID that uh, got me thinking. I took a look at it when uh, you were writing about how COVID was going to teach us or at least give us a lot of great examples of uh, how how to handle innovation because so much of it was being done out in the open. And I, I really liked it. You know, I thought if, if there was any lesson that I got from this, it was so many governments and companies rushed through products without pre-testing. And you really got to see how most ideas that businesses start developing are, are, are bad and fail. You know, like think of all those immunity passport apps and COVID tracker apps and all all the things that they devised that are usually not visible to us because they're in-house tested. Can you say a little bit more about maybe the paper and what you've seen since? Yeah, I mean, it it came out of like a really long research project that my wife and I have uh, been doing on innovation in police and military organizations. Uh, My wife, Mia, did her PhD in the Danish police. I was interested in like creativity and how do police officers like within that very bureaucratic setting, how, how do they actually do creativity? Right. And then uh, we're actually just before I came to talk to you, I was doing the coding for that paper because it had sort of a, it's taken a long time Mm -hmm. or recoding, I should say. (laughs) And so what we, what we basically observed was this enormous amount of innovation and and just a huge tendency to hide it from managers. Police officers develop all kinds of solutions to get their work done. Soldiers do the same thing and just tend to hide it, right? There's a whole array of like pretty well-established tactics in these communities of practice for how do we develop things without our managers knowing and how do we use them without our managers knowing and sort of a whole set of practices around hiding. And so when COVID rolled around, because we still talked to some of these people, they were they're like, oh, that the kind of innovation that you were studying, it's just exploding right now. Um, yeah. We're doing because we were totally unprepared for this, especially in the police. Yeah. They had like all kinds of tasks that they'd never had before. I bet. Um, and so really, we have to 
come up with solutions for this. And it seems like the risk aversion, the intolerance for innovation and deviance has just been reduced a lot, right? So these bureaucratic yeah. organizations, it felt like they'd sort of been taken off the bureaucratic hook um, because everyone yeah. sort of recognized this is a strange situation. Fix it. And so that paper that you mentioned, which is um, about frontline innovation in times of crisis, was trying to say this crisis is probably going to do two things, right? It's going to increase the need for innovation and the innovation that happens in the front line. And I think you can see that. If you go to a hospital and ask them what they do now that they didn't do a year ago or a year and a half ago. The whole world's different. Of, the whole, like everybody's been Everything. inventing, right? Um, yeah. I mean, grocery stores are different. Everything's different, you know? And a lot of the difference is these very local adaptations, right? How do we get this to work here? And so the interesting thing was also that there's actually, it seems like there's going to be a window here for actually capturing that learning because so much of it happens now out in the open, right? Yeah. Because everyone knows that it's an exceptional circumstance. So the tendency to hide, we said, probably is going to be reduced. So more of the, it's going to be an accelerated learning and innovation environment and more of it's going to be uh, possible to capture. And so we had some speculation about the kinds of things that you could do to to capture that learning. Um, how mm -hmm. much of it is being done? I'm a little skeptical. Yes. And I think most of it, once we return to this bureaucratic normality, it'll fade out and people will get back to fighting the last war. Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I think there would have been a moment for capturing some of this learning, which would have possibly contributed to societal readiness for the next uh, pandemic, if that rolls yeah. around, when that rolls around. Amazing. Before I let you go, uh, if if there are students who are interested in entrepreneurship, uh, where would you, who should they look up? Where should they dig a little, uh, sociology doctoral students in particular, like where, where can they dig around to learn a little more and, you know. Howard Aldridge, I think is a great resource um, and yeah. has done some really cool stuff. It has been involved in the panel study for entrepreneurial dynamics, which is a pretty mm -hmm. unique sort of data set, that. And then there's also a research group in Alberta, which is, I think, doing a lot of interesting things. Um, Michael Lounsbury is a, uh, would be a good person to look up there. Mm -hmm. In the sort of category of shameless self-promotion, uh, there's, <laughs> there's, there's an issue of um, uh, research in the sociology of organizations coming out later this year on critical perspectives on entrepreneurship where one of our papers on the Blendian entrepreneurship is coming out together with lots of lots more interesting papers. Who, who are the editors? And what's the editor and press, just for anybody who wants to know? Um, Michael Lounsbury and uh, Bob Eberhard from, um, from okay. Stanford. I think that would be a really interesting place to look. So I think those would be, those would be good starting points uh, for most people. Um, Victor Chen, uh, I think, would also be worth looking up for lots of people in Virginia. Doing some really, right? Of course, there's sort of the panel study type um, type activities, and I think Victor has done some nice nice work looking at the and and people around uh, in sort of his community have been doing work on like the relationship between employment precarity and entrepreneurship and how that sort of fits together and and how that gets gets done. I think that would I think that would be good places to look um, for sure. Rasmus Koss Hartman from Copenhagen Business School. Thank you very much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. A special thank you to Rasmus Koss Hartman from Copenhagen Business School. We're on the web, theannex.com, on Facebook, the Annex Sociology podcast, and on Twitter, at SociAnnex. Our production team is led by Lisette Moreno and Hanmei Cho. Music is by Lena Orsa. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. I'm Joseph Cohen. Thanks for listening.